Welcome to Safety Talk. Personal safety expert Pete Canavan shares his insights and interviews experts who provide simple and effective tips, techniques, and technologies to keep you safe and secure both online and off. Here's Pete. Hello and welcome to Safety Talk. I am your host and personal safety expert, Pete Canavan, and I'm joined by my colleague, branding and social media expert, Neil Haley. How are you doing tonight, Neil? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, streaming Bosch right now. Uh, I have to bring up our one time we were trying to do a, some sort of a morning show together or kind of variety show, but I'm watching Bosch uh, season five and it's really good, but I've streamed it really quickly and I'm going to be really upset when the season's over and we'll have to wait to season six, but... If you've not checked out Bosch on Amazon, check it out for sure. Love Titus and how uh, they did unbelievable show. Uh, unbelievable what Michael Conley's been able to do with this brand on uh, Amazon. One of the longest lasting, uh, I forget what the rule, um, like uh, series right now, where the way they're doing it. Oh, yeah. yeah I've, I've never watched it. I don't know anything about it. So we'll have to you have to give me a little more detail later and see in my spare time <laughs> I get a chance to watch some of it which i have very little of that these days but uh uh so we'll uh, get rocking and rolling here but unfortunately i'm gonna have to take it down uh, a little bit of a notch here you know start off light and whatnot but you know this past uh, weekend was easter sunday and uh, a lot of celebrations around the world but unfortunately some very sad news as i'm sure many people have seen out of sri lanka this weekend as coordinated attacks on Three churches and three luxury hotels were carried out, and to, up to the this time of this uh, podcast here and this recording, we have learned that uh, now 290 people have been killed and over 400 have been wounded. Uh, they've arrested 24 people so far, but uh, as if that wasn't shocking enough and, and really something that really makes you sit back and go, you know, what is going on and, and how is this possible that people are you know, perpetrating this sort of violence against, you know, people who are peacefully celebrating a, a very, you know, uh, sacred uh, holiday uh, in uh, several religions. But the equally shopping, shocking thing is that there was an intelligence memo that was circulated 10 days prior to the attacks that warned of a possible attack on Easter Sunday. And so, that is so upsetting to me because this needs to be examined. Uh, this needs to be looked at as to why additional preventative measures were not taken, why uh, this warning was not apparently you know, taken seriously. It was apparently ignored. So very, very disturbing. And we're sure to find out a lot of different you know, takes on this. We're going to find out some other facts and information as the days and the weeks go by. But uh, obviously, our hearts and minds go out to the families of the dead and the wounded. And you know, again, it's senseless violence. It continues to shock us. And, you know, in every corner of the world, it, it appears that, you know, is impacted by these events. So, you know, la uh, last month we had a guest on who spoke in detail, uh, actually, on this subject. And if you missed that episode, I encourage you to go listen to that episode with uh, Bob Aramondo, who actually, as part of what he does and his security people, they actually protect synagogues in North Jersey. And he is a global security expert, global protection services expert. He's traveled all over the world. Very, very interesting episode. Uh, now, today's guest, maybe I'll talk a little bit about this sort of thing, and, and so we're going to hear a little bit about that from her. Uh, our guest today is an American sociobiologist and futurist. Uh, she is the preeminent global expert on the subject of, quote, fast adaptation, 
And she's also the recipient of the prestigious Edward O. Wilson Biodiversity Education, I'm sorry, Biodiversity Technology Award. Uh, her career spans four decades. She's got a lot of experience. Uh, she's worked with founders and key executives and venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. She's also worked with some major clients, some names you probably may have heard of, uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, Apple, Oracle, GE, and uh, many others. Now, she puts forward some very urgent and sophisticated ideas about civilizational collapse. And Rebecca Costa is our guest, and we will definitely get into some of this today. Two years ago, she published a book called On the Verge. And in that book, she discusses the value of acting preeminently to prevent damage when we know a problem is imminent, just as we were talking about here, uh, on both global scales as well as on personal levels. And, uh, you know, there's new data that shows that this is possible. So it uh, sounds a little bit like Minority Report to me. So, uh, And so with that, welcome to Safety Talk, Rebecca. Thanks for being on the show with us today. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, it's just, uh, unfortunately, it's a, a really perfect time for us to have this discussion. This tragedy in Sri Lanka is just, uh, you know, we, we haven't even uncovered the tip of the iceberg at this particular point in time. No, they're just starting to get details. But, you know, anything that can be done to yeah. improve safety is, is what we're all about here on, on Safety Talk on the show. And uh, you've got some very interesting information about emerging tech and where you see society and, and the U.S. and global markets heading. And we're going to get into some of that. But I first wanted to get, you know, sort of your take on that awful news out of Sri Lanka that I just talked about that. And, you know, if you had any sort of thoughts about that, personal, professional, before we get into any of our specific questions? Well, we could easily occupy an entire program and then some on this particular topic because the perpetrators and their actions are no longer unknown. And this is presenting a real dilemma for us in, in society, and we're not socially um, evolved enough to really deal with it. The fact is, it should come as no surprise to anyone listening that 24 hours and, and literally minutes after these um, these horrendous acts are, are perpetrated. We know who the offenders are. And the problem, of course, is we're working backwards. As we begin to work backwards, we find that these intelligence memos, they existed, and the, the, um, the authorities failed to act. And we find that there, were, uh, there was erratic behavior. The people bought weapons. And we start to trace and, and connect all these dots, and we say, wow, you know, it was pretty inevitable. Um, the example that I like to give, if you can, you know, give me a little bit of time here, I'd like to use absolutely. the example yeah, well, that's what I want to, Sure, no, absolutely. I mean, this is important, and this is something that is in everybody's minds, and I think everybody is kind of wondering, you know, what what can you do? Why weren't people alerted when there was this sort of bread? Well, but they were. Trail? They were. This is the fact. They were alerted. We do know who is committing these acts. And when we work backwards, we start to put all of these dots together and we know that they're going to act. The question is, what can we do when we know somebody with a great deal of certainty is going to commit an act? You know, you mentioned the movie Minority Report. I have to keep reminding people that read my books that Minority Report wasn't a documentary, you know, because mm. because the fact is, is that we do have that capability today. And I'll give you a, an example. I, I like to use Stephen Paddock, the Las Vegas shooter, as an example, because within 24 hours, as we began to work backwards after he had shot into those concert goers in Las Vegas, we had discovered that 
he had bought 42 firearms and mostly escalated in the week, a couple of weeks before he, he committed that, that terrible act. Um, he was a, uh, his father was a dangerous sociopath. Now, as a, as a scientist, I can tell you that's a heritable quality. And just about 90 days before he, um, uh, you know, went berserk, if I can use a scientific term, uh, <laughs> Uh, he, he was put on diazepam. Now, anybody who has a family history of, uh, of dangerous sociopathy uh, does not go on diazepam. So shame on the doctor who put him on diazepam. Uh, a couple of weeks before the shooting, he sent his significant other uh, to another country and sent his money there. His gambling behavior became very, very erratic. He lived in 27 residences le leading up to uh, the committing of the crime. Uh, wow. uh, uh, a week before, he bought uh, tracer rounds, which allowed him to shoot better and more accurately in the dark. Um, he bought 1,600 uh, 1, rounds of ammunition. Um, there were many, many, many clues. Many clues that he was reaching a point of criticality. Now, sometimes people don't know what predictive analytics is. Predictive analytics are algorithms that allow us now, using artificial intelligence, to take billions, not, not thousands, not hundreds, billions of data points and be able to assess with tremendous accuracy what your next action will be. And wow. this is where we sit today. We sit today where just monitoring words you use in social media, there are danger words and there are uh, happy words. Yeah. And just by simply monitoring your vocabulary on social media and in emails, we can determine which people are beginning to uh, uh, act in a way that is dangerous. Whether now, to themselves, that... suicidal, or or to others, and so we're getting to a point now where we are getting to minority point, uh, minority report. It, it may be that we only are at eighty five. Let's just give give us the benefit of the doubt and say we're at eighty five percent accuracy. We know someone is going to do something, but you know how technology goes. We'll go from eighty percent or eighty five percent to eighty six percent, eighty seven percent, eighty eight percent. And over better. time, with the advent of quantum computing and other tools, we're going to get very quickly to the 99.9 .9 percentile that you are going to commit an act like we saw in Sri Lanka, and you tell me what we can do about it. So that obviously brings us to the critical question of, can you sort of arrest somebody for a crime that you're pretty certain they're going to commit before they commit it? Now, I would say no. In the minority report, we had thought police that right. came in and arrested you one second before you were going to commit the act. Right, which is but I mean, see, it, and that there's there goes my conversation going back to Facebook. Now we're going to look at specific people if they when when the first came out. Okay, the alt right's not allowed to have any uh, part of this platform. Now it's defining into conservatism. So now we're going to say, if you're a Christian, 
you can't have this platform. So we're really dealing with a lot of things that you were saying in the minority report and that fact. You're based on someone's speech, based on specific acts that they say on social media now are are censored or considered you are considered unright based on your beliefs. Now we can, I think I think it's our responsibility that once somebody like that has been identified to not necessarily go out and arrest them right then and there because there's been no crime committed. They may think about it. I mean, we all probably think about things that uh, from time to time we're like, well, you know, I wish I could, you know, do so-and-so, you know, knock this person out because they're driving me crazy, but we know we're not going to do it, but we can think of it. So the next, you know, sort of, I guess, evolution of that would be, okay, so then we have to have some sort of responsibility to sort of step up the monitoring of these individuals that have been identified as, you know, having a very high likelihood of committing some sort of atrocity. But, but our, entire, our entire legal system is based on after the fact. Right. We, you, you have to commit the act, and then we go and we get you, and then we try you, right? And, and then we try you again and again and again, it turns out, to, give you lot, to get lots of chances that we don't convict the innocent. Right. And then we, we go to the punitive stage. That is our entire judicial system. And the reason is because even after Stephen Paddock had done all those things, checked himself into the room in Las Vegas, right, broken the window and pointed the gun at the at the concert goers, he could have had a change of heart. He could have put the gun down, sat down on the bed and said, I'm not going to do it, packed up sure. and gone home. And we believe in that. We believe in free will. We believe in redemption. We believe people can change their mind. But the reality is computers are smarter than our belief. Computers can take billions of of, uh, behavioral markers now and activities and vocabulary and drugs that we're on and, and spending patterns and look for erratic behaviors and begin now with tremendous accuracy that we have never had before and say within 99.9%, this person is going to act out in a violent way. The, we have those tools in technology. The question is, how are we going to use them? Right. Because that's, you're, you're, you're now crossing that sort of line in you know, like you just mentioned, the the judicial system is set up a certain way, innocent to proven guilty. You've got to be tried. You've got to commit the crime before you can actually be tried. And then, you know, then it goes to all kinds of, you know, then the lawyers get involved and, you know, the jury gets involved and you have all of these people now that are making decisions based on something that you did and so as to why you did it and what influenced you to do it. And, you know, were you in the right state of mind before you did it? And, you know, all of these different things come into place. Yeah. So it's really- We don't have the legal means. We don't have the legal tools to stop someone. People listening should understand we don't have preventive tools. They don't exist in the legal do, system. Do you want those preventive tools? I think it's really scary. Yeah. Because, because when you start to think about punishing someone for something that artificial intelligence has dictated has a 99.99% probability of occurring, you have to abandon free will. You have to abandon the idea that someone could make a snap decision at the 11th hour and not commit the act. On the other hand, 
to move forward as we are today and allow 290 innocent people to die unnecessarily? It's a very sad. You know, that's state. not the right answer either. That no. I mean, I think everybody listening would agree that's not the right answer. But no, to take away not. people's liberty is not the right answer either. So this is what I mean. This is why I'm so glad we're having this conversation. We have to talk about this because technology is moving forward. It's not as though this, you know, you could say, well, I don't like that. doesn't matter if you like technology or not. doesn't matter if you think it's right or wrong. We have the tools. We can stop these things. We don't have the legal tools. And we don't really know how that will work. No, not at all. So as, you know, as I, as I looked over your books, Rebecca, and, you, and you've got a few of them there, you know, my impression is that when you look at the data and you look and you see like not just where America's heading, but where other countries are heading, you know, whether it's what happened in Australia or New Zealand, whether what's happened in, in Sri Lanka, whatever, you know, the things that have happened in, in Las Vegas and in other places all over the world all the time. Um, you know, you're worried, I'm worried, Neil's worried, we're all worried that we're repeating the same mistakes that have been made in the past, you know, by, for example, like by prior civilizations, as, as you talk about. Yes. And um, we're responding not. in a really prehistoric way. We're going, you know, we're going, okay, well, you know, if we just get rid of the guns, Right. Well, it's, I'm sorry. You know, you can get rid of all the metal based guns, but you can download a 3d printing, uh, you know, schematic and print your own plastic gun. Right. There will always be ways that people will find, you know, some method of yeah. carrying out what they want to do. And I agree. I mean, just, you know, banning guns, doing, you know, if, so, if you ban guns, they're going to go to knives. If you ban knives, they're going to go to screwdrivers. You ban screwdrivers, it's going to be a pen. I mean, like, the, I, I'm a martial artist. I've been studying martial arts for over 20 some years now. You know how many different ways I know how to kill somebody using just about anything at my disposal? It doesn't have to be a gun. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, you know, ordinary fertilizer can be turned into a bomb right there's so many ways to do it you so, know you can't you can't kill every inevitability and the fact is is that getting rid of you know uh, guns isn't going to help you when you can just print a 3d uh, printed gun that's plastic and and do damage I, I mean it just we're 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 not addressing the real issue the real issue has to do with civil liberties and and how we want to live what kind of society want we want to be when we actually know who the perpetrators are, do you know that by age four or five, we can predict which children are likely to become sociopaths? We have these it. tools. Well, my wife is a second we grade teacher, and she tells we, me we from have time this, to time yeah. that there are kids in her class, and she knows that that kid is going could has the potential to grow up to be somebody not real nice. A violent sociopath. Yes. Uh -huh. And we can, and, and we can, we can subject them to a battery of tests today and we can predict in very high percentiles in the nineties in terms of percentile that those children are going to be violent sociopaths if they grow up. Now, if you're a parent, do you want that information? And then even if you got that information, what would you do with it? Yeah, we if can't you're a cure. Parent, you're we, gonna try we, to we do have, everything you by can. By the way, we have no we have no cure for sociopaths. We don't no. have we don't have no, a cure no. for that. So no. what do you do if your child has been diagnosed that way? 
Well, you you do what you can as a parent, and if you're a responsible, loving parent, you're going to try to smother that child with love and attention and get them to hopefully go down the course and the the you know live the life of a responsible person who ends up being you know someone who contributes to society. Is there any guarantee? But of that's that? not no. going to do anything. But that's not going to do anything for genetic heritability. Genetic heritability is going to be fifty percent or more of it. You can't you can't love that away. So what is genetic heritability? These are the harsh reality. This is the these are the harsh realities that we're not coming to terms with. We're not drilling down to what is real. So and explain, what is truthful and what we can fix. Explain to our listeners what genetic heritability is. That means that 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 is embedded in your DNA, just like your predisposition to to get colon cancer or to have heart disease or breast cancer. Okay. When you're born into this world, you're born with a, yeah, at the genetic level, you're born for certain personality traits. If if you had one or two parents that were violent sociopaths, that can be inherited. The predisposition doesn't mean you will. Right. But, you know, just like if you're predisposed to colon cancer doesn't or lung cancer doesn't mean you're going to get it, but it means that you have a much higher probability. So is that where genetics could genetic screening now play a, a role in that, where if you were genetic code prior to birth comes back and says, you know what, there is something in this you know, this fetus is genetic code that says there's going to be a likelihood that they are going to be predisposed to being a, a violent sociopath, uh, then what is, you know, then what can you do about it? I mean, then the parents can say, well, you know, is there a way that we can tweak that? And now you start kind of playing God with genetics. Do you now make a decision based on that information as to whether or not you want to, you know, keep the baby? Do you make the decision to keep the baby and then realize that you've got to watch them more carefully. I mean, that's, you start, you know, it opens up so many different sorts of questions when you start to go down this road as we are. And, and it, and they are uncomfortable questions. They are difficult questions. They do not have easy answers, but I am a scientist by training. And I will tell you that I see no benefit in denying that we don't have those genetic tools, that we don't have the artificial intelligence algorithms to be able to identify and know. We may not know where people are going to carry out events, but I promise you we know who and we know when. Wow. That, that's we some, know who that, and we know when. And as you yeah. watch this Sri Lanka situation unfold, every day, I promise everyone listening to this broadcast, every single day, four or five new data points are going to emerge. Not just this intelligence report, but as we work backwards, they're going to say, well, then they bought this, and then they did this, and they moved here. And then they're going to look at their immigration visas, and they're going to look at the activities prior to. And they're going to start stringing a bunch of things together, just like Stephen Paddock. And pretty soon, you're going to, if you keep track, if you just write down every new piece of data that comes out, you're going to see just you alone will have hundreds of data points and you'll be saying, asking yourself, why didn't they do anything? And my answer will be, what could they do? Right. So, so, so I mean, the, um, what I'm hearing from you is, well, is it, can we predict people's 
based on being a scientist, can we predict what people's behavior is going to be? Are we, should we? Yes. The answer is yes. We can. Is it guaranteed as a behavioralist? Is that a guarantee? No, no. So if I know, for example, there is always, there is always room for someone to change their mind. Right. Change their mind or be reformed just because you're in this realm of this personality or what do you think the opposite of your thinking that are behaviorists want to do? They want to identify people and put them in a track and then that track stays for the rest of their lives. And that's wrong. That's wrong by any measure because it denies the great human potential. Okay. Yeah, it's a, so, it's but a we crazy... have to, you know, we have to deal with it because because at no time in human history did we have the ability to look ahead and be able to predict with such precision and accuracy. Let me just give give listeners a very simple example, which will help them to really understand how accurate we are. We right now we can predict that you're going to trip and fall within the next three weeks with about an 86 to 90 percent accuracy. Now, when I say that to people, they go, that's impossible. You can't know I'm going to trip. And I say, well, yes, I can with almost a ni- up to a 90 percent accuracy. I can. And I know it's going to happen in three in a three week time window. And they so go, you can't that know possible? that. And I said, yes. Well, because because. We have identified that there is a three to five centimeter change in your normal walking gait. Your normal everyday walking gait changes three to five centimeters. And if that occurs, there is an 86 to 90 percent chance you're going to trip and fall. Now, that doesn't probably mean anything to a young person, but think of the elderly who lose their ability to live independently because they take a bad fall and they break their hip or their leg, and then suddenly they're in assisted living, and it's downhill from there. So imagine the impact of within an 86 to 90% probability being able to put a little Fitbit-like thing on your, on your ankle and say, hey, your normal walking gait has changed within three to five centimeters. Get into physical therapy. Start using a cane. It pings their caretaker or their family and says, you know, your mom or dad is in danger of taking a fall within a three-week period of time. Hmm. They need to correct their walking gait. If you correct the walking gait, the danger goes away. This is where we are in, in life today. This is what technology can do. And, well, and, and so, you know, and you can look this up. Anything oh, I'm yeah. talking about right now, you can just go on YouTube or go on the Internet and verify all of these things, right? Well, when we were at, at the uh, security the show, me, well, I was just going to say the at the um, at the security show last week, they had yep. a a camera that analyzed the person's gait. So because it's as unique to you, basically, as like your fingerprint, everybody walks a certain way. And these cameras That's were actually right. doing that as people were walking by, because, as you said, the technology to do that already exists. And so I can see the benefit of having something like that, where you're monitoring a change in the way somebody is moving or walking, especially an elderly person where they're, you know, the ramifications from them taking a fall could be a lot worse than, you know, a five-year-old or an 18-year-old, for example. So that's exactly right. And imagine having those cameras all throughout a, a person's house and being able to ping your cell phone and say, hey, your walking gait has changed. You're in danger of taking a fall. Get in and have it uh, fixed. 
in physical therapy. I mean, I, I mean, it's, so I, it sounds wild, but it's real. Oh no, it's it, the technology exists, and being able to use it in a practical sense to keep people safer is is obviously something that's uh, that's going to garner a lot of interest from from a lot of people, you know, from the medical industry, from insurance companies, and you know, as well as obviously the people that that could be affected by that. So I'd, I'd like to kind of move on with with some of the other things that, that we have down here to, to talk about here because <laughs> time's flying. We've got some great information uh, that we're talking about here, Rebecca. Um, we're looking at these problems that are that are happening in the world. And, you know, I think you would agree that the these trajectories are very disturbing. Um, they're precarious. There are, you know, a lot of very, you know, bad things that we're seeing happen all the time. Um, you you have a book called In Watchmen's, The Watchmen's and uh, Rattle, I think it's called, The Watchmen's Rattle. And yeah, so there's right. something that you talk about called the cognitive threshold. And I'd like to get into that a little yes. bit because it's very interesting. Can you explain exactly what that is? Well, when I wrote that book, I, I did not know. Obviously, I wrote it six or seven years ago, and I did not know that the world events were going to unfold the way they are. People think I have a crystal ball. I did not. But I'm a data wonk, and I take data. And when you know what the first 1,000 data points are, it's not that hard to predict what 1,001 is going to be. Right. Right. And and sure. so for me, in collecting data, I was able to see a pattern that occurred in previous societies. I studied the the Mayans, the Ming, the Egyptian Empire, the Khmer Empire, and I became very interested in what was their behavior prior to their collapse. By collapse, I don't mean everyone died. I just mean all their uh, social systems collapsed. And I wasn't interested in what historians typically write about, which is whatever cataclysmic event, you know, sent them over the edge. I think that those have been studied well enough. I was just interested in if they were acting in any particular way that made them vulnerable to that cataclysmic event. And lo and behold, as I began studying all these societies, I noticed that there was a common denominator. And that common denominator is that day-to-day life became too complex for the citizens to understand and and also for the leaders to actually understand and as that as the complexity started to grow in their society um there became a mass confusion between what was an empirical fact and what was an unproven belief and once that occurred public policy began being based on uh, unproven beliefs and not on empirical facts And so a lot of people go, well, if those are the three steps, you know, complexity outgrows what people can actually, what their brains were evolved to actually be able to understand. And then they switch over to unproven beliefs and ignore empirical fact. And then public policy is based on unproven beliefs. And then the society is basically set up for collapse. Do you think that's happening to us now? And my answer is yes. I was just going to say, it sounds clear. like what's happening today. I mean, that's that's pretty yeah, scary. Yeah, because we have leaders who have never taken a physics course that have to make decisions about nuclear energy. Right. They're all lawyers that are making decisions, right, in Washington, not scientists. That you know, you've got you've got like what four or five doctors out of out of hundreds that are making decisions on healthcare. What do they know? Right. They've or never they had advisors. a med class. They've never worked in a hospital. You know, so, I mean, the, the problem is, is that very, very complex issues 
are are being determined based on beliefs and and these days politics, not based on empirical fact. And and so we we could kind of see that policy is becoming increasingly irrational and doesn't make any empirical sense. And as a scientist, I can tell you that I, I you know, my blood pressure goes up if, if we start talking about politics, because I'm a rational human being. If you show me the data, that's how I make my decisions. Well, I can tell you're very, any opinion. Uh, you're very passionate about your, your topic and the information because it is, uh, it's something that's very important. So what evidence do you see of this cognitive threshold being sort of, we're hitting up against it now in, in modern society today? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. One, um, you know, our brains are designed to understand barter. Okay, that's that's how we've evolved. You know, we don't. Our brains are not uh, substantially haven't changed over the last couple of million years. Not a lot. Our frontal cortex has grown to occupy about a third of our brain, and that's sort of the CEO that thinks rationally. <laughs> um, but in reality, social progress has become way more complicated, right? And so you can look at Wall Street. And look at the financial instruments. You know, uh, we we have like you know uh, derivatives and and all of these uh, you know credit default swaps and all these yep. instruments that even the experts on Wall Street can't explain to you. They oh, don't yeah, know how they so work. Many of them. Yep, makes very complicated. We, we don't we don't even know how currency how currency is valued because it's not tied to gold or silver. It's just it's just a political football. And, yep. and, and we don't know how currency is valued. We don't really understand how financial systems work anymore. This is, this is a truth. And even the oh, experts yeah. don't understand it. And oh, so and it's what so happens out of whack is today. Donald it's so Trump, out of whack too. Yeah, Donald Trump puts out a tweet, and all of a sudden the stock market takes a dive off of a tweet. <laughs> it's crazy. That, that's about as irrational as, as you can possibly get. So these wild swings do not bode well. What our brains do understand is you and I meet in the middle of the road. I have some carrots. You have some eggs. We bicker till we both think that we got the better of the other guy. We exchange goods and we walk away happy. That, that's what our brains can handle. And when we experience, and I say when, not if, when we experience a unilateral financial collapse, it, what collapse means is not that people will die or there'll be chaos in the streets. It simply means that social systems reverse to what the brain has evolved to be able to understand and manage logically and rationally. So social what, what systems you see return that, to what we are capable of doing. So what do you see that looking like, specifically in the United States? And then, you know, you could also expand upon that globally. But what, what does that collapse look like in your eyes? Money will be worth nothing. Right. So we go It'll be sorry, worth we nothing. back to the barter system. Wait, 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 we're back to we're back to bartering like you do in flea markets. People, uh, neighborhoods will come together and we will start the process again. We will we will start the climb again. This is the story of of modern man. We we collapse our systems when they become too complex, too burdensome. Nobody can control them or understand them. I, I use in my book the example of the Mayans. They were phenomenal hydraulic engineers. They knew that they had a tenuous relationship with water. 
if they didn't conserve water, do crop rotation. When do you, uh, build, when do you, when do you expect you know, this that, to happen? What is your prediction about when we're going to start seeing the downfall? Of our country, especially. I would say within well, well, as you start to see more and more swings, right, and more uh, erratic behavior, we're getting closer. So my my guess would be that we're within a decade of unilateral financial collapse. That that shouldn't scare anyone. I don't mean to. I'm not a, a fear monger. That should not scare anyone. It's not going to well, mean no, you're going to just... starve or. People no, are going to hold you up facts, in the street with guns. Yeah. If you look at what's happened, though, I mean, look at what happened during the last, quote, financial collapse. The government stepped in. They bailed out all the banks that they said were, quote, too big to fail. Well, those banks now are three times the size. So if they were too big to yeah. fail before and you look at where they are today and there's a problem, there is no way they're going to be able to be bailed out. And so this that whole system no, is there's going no to more collapse. bailing out. Oh, there is not. No, there's no, there's no more bailing out. And all of our financial systems, it was better before World War II. I write about this in my book when we had diversity. Diversity is a hedge against unilateral collapse. Yes. Right? The German systems were different. You know, the more centralization you get and the more enmeshment you get, the worse it gets because then you all fall like dominoes. I was against the uh, European Union, I was against the Euro. Uh, I was one of only a few scientists who said this is a very bad idea because all it's going to take is one country, right, not reporting according to right uh, standard accounting practices, and it's going to take all the countries down. And that country was Greece. Yep. And the minute the EU started bailing out Greece and Italy, it was game over. And now you've got Brexit, which is a holy mess. And and actually, it would be much more stable if every country in Europe had their own currency. It, it worked right. independently because diversification is stability. Yes, that yeah, is that, stability. I, and and the less of it we have, the more more danger there is of unilateral collapse. This is why I'm saying that there's there's some chance that we that we separate from each other's economies, right? And we move away from this, uh, this, this interdependent economy. There, there's some chance of that, but we'd have to do it rather quickly. But and I, I'm not sure we can. And the flip side of it is you have these other powers that are trying to create a one world economy and a one world currency. And they believe that globalization and centralization of governments and banks and currencies and control is the way to go. And that is the absolute worst thing yeah. to do, because now you've got one system and there is no more diversification. There is no, you know, no independence. And that's an extremely dangerous thing. And I was also someone that said that the EU forming and everybody getting rid of their own currencies and going to a single currency was crazy because all of those markets are completely different. And if one market that's goes right. up or down, and they all right. go up or down yeah, and you're right. screws it all up. Take a lesson from nature. You know, I, I started out as a sociobiologist before I landed in Silicon Valley in the 1970s and, and spent my career there working with with uh, amazing geniuses and innovators. But, but let's take a, a page out of just evolution. The reason you have so many different types of dogs 
hunting dogs and chihuahuas and dogs like St. Bernard's with thick coats that are big. And, and you have millions of types of fish and, and insects and, and varieties of bees and all of that is so that when the environment changes, some will have what's required for that change and will thrive and others will die off. This is the way nature works. There's lots of diversity so that certain species can survive. Sure. And will continue to perpetuate. And, and we can see that in nature. And nature is our playbook. Ultimately, the only patterns we have for success that have the longest standing successful record is nature itself. So we can look there and we can say, wow, when there's a lot of diversity, as the environment changes, some will survive. Some won't, many won't make it. This is what I mean about diversity in economy. As the environment changes, as we move to cryptocurrency or whatever else comes along our way, as the internet, you know, explodes, there'll be something else that disrupts us like the internet has uh, disrupted commerce. There'll be something else around the next corner. So, and as so, that happens, yeah, right. we need some economies to be able to adapt and some will fail. So what That's are we to okay. do? What That's are we, the what way are, it's supposed to be. What are we to do with this uh forecast you're giving us what can we do to slow this down well i i tell people the days of adaptation are over you must predapt you must look further down the road because the great gift you have the great gift your brain has is the ability to do thought experiments look at data process it objectively and see what is down the road in the future and then take some action today to minimize the negative outcomes to you. So you can't wait until danger is upon you anymore. This gets no, back to the prepare. Sri Lanka. It gets, back to the, it gets back to the economic collapse. You'd be a fool. These are like large ocean liners. You have to start the turn now. You must prepare for an economic collapse and the fact that you must take care of you and your family for a period of time, just like you take precautions for earthquake or fire sure. or uh, a hurricane. You the need time to, to take prepare, precautions now. As I say, the time to prepare yeah. is before the yeah. need arises. <laughs> and that's pre-adaptation. That's right. pre, you're pre-adapting. You're, you're adapting before the event has occurred. So you describe yourself as a futurist. Okay, so we're talking about the future. And it's always fun, sometimes a little scary, uh, to think about the future and to sort of make you know predictions about what we think is going to happen. Uh, now, if we were to try to have a sustainable civilization and a planet that thrives, um, what and, and there's something that you were, you were talking about where um, a, a type one civilization, um, which basically is a sustainable, planetary civilization that's, you know, powered by the sun. And the data says we've got maybe a hundred years or so to, to come up with this sort of, you know, better way of doing things or in the next hundred years or so we're, it'll be too late. So what, what chance do you think, you know, and in, in and what do we have to do for us to get to that point where we can be sustainable, that we can get beyond that hundred years mark, that we can flourish as we go down this path, you know, not decades from now, but a hundred, two hundred, three years, hundred years from now. We need to be a data reliant society. We need to stop 
uh, falling prey to charismatic leaders and prehistoric emotions, tribal emotions, which are causing us to make uh, very, very dangerous decisions. Uh, Ed Wilson put it the best. He, you know, I've never heard anyone say it more efficiently. He said, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. <laughs> that is perfect. That, is our, that is our yeah. situation. Yeah, that is our situation right now. Right. Our institutions are medieval, and they're, <laughs> they've fallen far, far, far behind technology. So, our emotions of, are Paleolithic, right. so we go into tribal warfare when we should be looking at the data and taking advantage of these wonderful godlike technologies that would allow us to head off danger. So what about that would allow what, us not to suffer? President Trump, let's go right to the co- t- topic of President Trump as a behavioralist. Is this good for the country or bad for the country? I, I'm well, not going to touch that yeah, with a yeah, 10 yeah, foot Oh, pole. see, there you go. <laughs> see, I knew I'd ask a question you wouldn't answer. Nah, no, nah, you're not, you're not going to throw me in that, in that <laughs> fairy patch. But I mean, okay, so, but, but but you believe that if people feel unsafe, it's a bad situation for the environment in general. I believe that we're in a messy period right now, and that as artificial intelligence becomes more and more part of our everyday life, you know, we we ask Alexa a question, and when Alexa answers us, we believe her more than we believe our spouse. Which you know, is... I mean, how many times in the middle of an argument do you yell out Alexa <laughs> or do you grab your phone and say, I'm going to Google that? I think you're wrong. Right. right a lot of people. Um, Technology is so, right at our fingertips. Right. To right. Get the answers that we need. And, and and that's rightly so, because computers don't, you know, and, and you can't, by the way, when you people go, well, you know, what if somebody maniacal manipulates artificial intelligence? You can't because artificial intelligence is looking at billions and billions of data points. And if you try without to manipulate emotion. one, it just throws it out. It and it's looking it at it without says, emotion. Yeah, so try. it's looking at it as right. A, There's no emotion. It's only looking at the data. The question is whether society can accept the data, is prepared to act on the data, right? Is prepared to transform those medieval institutions to accommodate data that will make it a better world, that will save our world. So, so people get really out of joints when I tell them I trust. I trust artificial intelligence more than I trust any human being. Well, and that's and, and I know you you didn't want to say anything about Trump, but let's let's go to the media because I'm sure you have something to say about the role that the media plays in all of this. And it's <laughs> not all good, not all bad. It's somewhere I guess. Well, I, I'm not even going to go there. I want to get your kind of take, but you know, let's let's talk about that a little bit. You know, the role that the media plays in all this because we've got Everything in the news focuses on the sensational, the bad news, the things that are going to sell the newspapers, and it doesn't focus on the solutions. It doesn't focus on the positive. And so that's, you know, what's your take on the role of the media in all of this and how they can sort of well, help? Look, the media, the, the media is not, yeah, the media is not some, you know, uh, uh, church that's doing nonprofit work. The media exists to sell advertising, to make money. Mm-hmm. That's the purpose of the media. And the more eyeballs and ears you have, the more you can charge for advertising, the more profit that you make. So it used to be in my, you know, I'm old enough to remember when news bureaus didn't have anything to do with advertising, but now they're all rolled into programming. 
Yep. And so there's no there's no firewall between news and the uh, you know and uh, uh, the housewives of Beverly Hills. It's all the same stuff. How many eyeballs can you get, and what can you charge for advertising? So we shouldn't be under any delusion that some somehow news is stands above any other programming. It it really and truly does not. And again, you know, it, 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 to the extent that they appeal to our Paleolithic emotions. They get our blood pressure up. They appeal to our voyeurism. They appeal to excitement such as pornography. To the extent that they appeal to our lower animal instincts, they get more viewers. But it's a cheap shot. We're better than that. But so is there any way that you see the news media being able to change? Can the news media change and give us more real news as as opposed to fake news or untold news or sensationalist, you know, news stories uh, or news that's ignored? Okay, so, Pete, I'm going to feel really optimistic about the media when your podcast Get as many viewers as the Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, see, I, I, see, 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 I listen. To, I, okay. I interview them because celebrity sells, and I know for a fact that okay, that's, that's. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be really, I'm gonna feel really good about the media when that happens. But see, I, but, I but it you. never will. It's all about sensationalism. It's all about specific things. And now, as I said, right. with, with Facebook doing this is going to ruin a lot of the uh, conversations that are online of why so many people go to Facebook because they want to go and debate. They want to have a dialogue and get fired up. If you, if you censor things, Facebook's making a big mistake because that's what makes the media so great is the controversy. Yeah. The, the, but you know yes, what? They but do we have censor to understand, are we, you know, does we have to look at the programming and understand are we appealing to the emotions that we share with the lower animals or are we appealing to our higher selves look there's we're definitely not appealing to our higher species. selves anytime you put on the tv it's just mostly garbage i mean it's, it's okay, so, so much bad stuff we're appealing to the lower end undoubtedly like you said those animalistic you know emotions that sell because we want you know to feel those emotions whether it's anger or love or lust or action or you know horror or you know any of those those real primitive emotions because that's what sells that's what people want to watch that's what they want to hear because i think a lot of it has to do with them escaping from reality and the the fact that they don't want to have to think and they don't want to use those higher cognitive functions like we're doing on this show where you're making people think you're talking about real solutions and real problems and ways that we can make a difference if we could only harness the power of this technology in the right way. And until the majority of people also feel that way, it's a real tough uphill battle to do that. It it is, but think of it this way, right? After three and a half million years, human beings have climbed to the very top of the living pyramid. We're it. We're it. As far as we know. <laughs> and it, yeah, yeah. As far as we know, we're it. And as a sociobiologist and evolutionary biologist, I'm so disappointed. I'm just disappointed. I'm not angry. I'm not aiming anything at Trump or any individual person. I'm just disappointed. You know, it took 
uh, millions of years to develop a frontal cortex. We can perform thought experiments about the future better than any other organism on this planet. And we know we can make a connection between something we're doing today and what that consequence might be 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And we've invented technology that will live and tell us hundreds of years down the road what the repercussions of our actions are. And yet we're acting, we're acting like the lower animals that don't have those tools. And I will tell you, I am a futurist. So I live a million years from now and I look back to today. I do. I look back to today. And, and we're going to look worse than the Neanderthals because the Neanderthals had an excuse. They didn't have tools that could right. do this. They didn't have solutions that could prevent tragedy like climate change. They so, weren't able to do anything. But we're going to look back at this time in human history and say, what was wrong with those guys? I'm sure that's what they're going to say about us. Oh, I'm sure of it. So do you have any last thoughts for our listeners or any final messages that you'd like to sort of put out there for those of us that are trying to build a better world and a better future? Yes. Rely on data. <laughs> don't don't rely on your lower instincts. You know, and 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 don't follow uh leaders that whip up your emotions because that's not a, that that's not going to be helpful. What we need to do is step away from those paleolithic emotions and rely on technology to help us forge a better future because the technology is available and it is out there and Everyone listening can help spread the word by spreading this podcast. You know, link people that you don't even think would listen to this podcast, link them to it. Because I think that the more people that listen to this kind of dialogue and understand what we're up against, the better chance we have. Amen to that. I, I, I agree. agree with you 100%. Mm -hmm. So if uh, people are interested in learning more about you, obviously they can listen to this podcast, but if they want to find out about you and uh, your books and services, Rebecca, where can our listeners go to uh, find out more? They can go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-C-O-S-T-A.com, myname.com. It's easy to remember. And we have a really fully loaded website where you get information on books, uh, sign up for our newsletter, and also watch a number of YouTube videos. Excellent. We'll be make we'll make sure that we put those links out there when we uh, we put this out through social media, and uh, I want to thank you very much, Rebecca, for uh, for coming on the Safety Talk, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Hope uh, it provokes some serious thought in people uh, after listening to uh, today's guest. And and uh, in the meantime, to get any more information or to get the latest news, you can always go to safetytalkpodcast.com for more information and to listen to prior episodes. So. Uh, Neil, any last thoughts? No other thoughts except uh, we have to really uh, wake up in specific ways. And uh, great conversation, great uh, dialogue to think about, for sure. Absolutely. So, Rebecca, thanks again. Thank you. And, and thank uh, you for the work you, you are both doing. I appreciate it very much. Oh, absolutely. No problem. So, and, until next time, everybody, stay safe. Thanks for tuning in to Safety Talk. You can listen to past episodes and get the latest safety news at our website, safetytalkpodcast.com. Be sure to visit our other websites for free safety checklists and infographics. 
You can also sign up for free online self-defense training, learn about college campus safety, and find out more about Pete and how he can help educate your school or business through his speaking, workshops, seminars, and consulting. Subscribe to the Safety Talk podcast and never miss out on any new safety information. Until next time, stay safe.